I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 29th, 2016. Coming up, journalist and megafire expert Michael Kodis will discuss the raging Kansas prairie fire and how it compares to wildfires in Colorado. And climate scientist Karen McKinnon will tell us how sea temperatures in the Pacific can predict heat waves far away in the eastern U.S. And CU scientist Sam Simkin will explain how too much of a good thing, nitrogen, is killing off plant diversity. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Here in Colorado, wildfires are common, especially in our mountain forest lands, but they also occur in our grasslands. In neighboring Kansas and Oklahoma, a monstrous fire has been raging for a week on the prairie, burning almost half a million acres. It's the largest fire in the history of Kansas, and it's a testament to how wildfire can happen anywhere. In fact, fires like this, albeit much smaller, have been a positive feature of prairie culture and the prairie's ecological cycles for centuries. Here to talk about what's unique about this fire and what it bodes for Colorado, and for that matter, the future of the West, is Michael Kodis. He's a journalist and author of a forthcoming book on megafires. He's also associate director of the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Environmental Journalism. Michael, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks for having me. So for starters, I mean, this is huge. You being a native from Kansas, Describe what's it like in this swath of land at the border of Oklahoma and Kansas. Well, it's, it's kind of classic prairie gla- grassland. You've got um, both um, uh, agriculture going on with uh, wheat and corn and a lot of, of ranch land in, in that area. Um, you know, growing up in Kansas, it's, it wasn't at all unusual to drive through that area and, and the Flint Hills, which are, uh, I believe this fire is spread to, um, and see lots of fires that were intentionally lit by ranchers in the area um, to uh, nourish the grass. You know, fire is a, is a critical part of, uh, of the grasslands there uh, and the prairie. And uh, uh, one of the uh, economic benefits of fire to that area is that uh, cattle who graze on grass that grows immediately after one of these burns gain about 15% more weight than um, cattle that are grazing on grass in areas that haven't burned. So it's a positive thing. Fattens them up and... Uh, Yes, so positive that uh, ranchers and farmers throughout that area, you know, for decades have taken burlap balls and soaked them in diesel and kerosene (laughs) and then lit them on fire and dragged them behind trucks or horses through their fields to to get them to burn. And isn't there some... Well, it's more than rumor, but some science behind it that there's actually some natural selection going on, some evolutionary purpose for fire, for the bison who are native of the prairie. Yeah, bison um, uh, uh, prefer this grass that grows immediately after a burn, and they actually will uh, lick or eat uh, the burned ground immediately after it, it's burned. Um, you know, and I've interviewed a number of people, but one CU scientist in particular who has witnessed uh, bison uh, run from one side of a burn to the other rather than run away from it <laughs> so that they could start uh, uh, you know, dining on the freshly charred ground. 
Uh, better to be first. So this is huge. It has been somewhat destructive. No one's been killed yet. But do we know yet what the uh, cause is? I haven't seen um, what the cause was. Um, you know, I think that there's a concern among a number of folks uh, that, you know, this could be an intentional burn set by a farmer or a rancher to their land that they lost control of. This is the time of year when um, uh, people will burn the plains. Um, but, uh, you know, we don't, we don't know that yet. Uh, you know, the thing that's really uh, unusual about this fire compared to the, the hundreds that would burn in Kansas and Oklahoma this time of year normally is that this is ob obviously so huge, but also that it's gone on for a very long time. Usually a grass fire like this lasts for a day at best. Yeah, and one other thing, do we know or what can you say, given all that you've studied of mega fires, if there's any link to climate change, and even if not with this one? what this bodes for the future in the West. Well, the, the weather in Kansas this year and in that area has been um, uh, quite crazy. Um, it's been overall um, very warm, but they had you know some very unusual late season snow, much like Colorado had uh, just recently, and actually snow that just arrived Sunday that has uh, basically tamed this fire. There is a sense that a lot of these areas, although they're not predicted to be as impacted as other parts of the country, uh, that they will be somewhat drier, um, and that would certainly uh, lend itself to uh, to this kind of fire. But when, when the weather's really volatile like that, even in areas that are supposed to get wetter, you often see a huge increase in fire, and particularly in a landscape like this, because what happens is you have a big pulse of precipitation, you have a big growth of, of grass, and then when it returns back to more arid conditions, you have far more fuel to burn. And so that can lead to these fires being much worse as well. Well, thank you. I know um, we'll be following more on the mega fire and climate change front. That was Michael Cotis, Associate Director of CU Boulder's Center for Environmental Journalism and author of the forthcoming book on mega fires. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And I'm Susan Moran. Up next, we have in the studio Tom Mulesman. He's a science journalist, professor, and director of the Center for Environmental Journalism at CU Boulder. He's contributed to the show in the past, and it's great to have you back, Tom. Thanks. It's great to be back. Tom has covered climate science and climate change since the 1980s, and he'll bring us news about how surface temperatures in the Pacific Ocean today can predict next month's heat waves in the eastern U.S., this is How on Earth. Stay tuned. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Tom Yulesman. What do sea surface temperatures in the middle of the North Pacific Ocean have to do with potentially deadly heat waves thousands of miles away in the eastern United States? Our guest today, Dr. Karen McKinnon, is here to give us the answer. McKinnon is a postdoctoral researcher at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. She and her colleagues have found that a particular fingerprint of Pacific sea surface temperatures is associated with increased odds of extreme heat striking the east during a particular week and even on a particular day. In fact, that oceanic fingerprint can be used to predict increased chances of summertime heat waves up to 50 days in advance. McKinnon's study was published Monday in the journal Nature Geoscience. She's here with us in the studio to tell us more about it. Welcome to the program, Karen. Thank you for having me. 
So tell us a little bit more about this fingerprint of sea surface temperatures in the North Pacific Ocean. Uh, it's called the Pacific Extreme Pattern. How does that help us predict heat waves up to 50 days later in the eastern United States? Sure. So what we identified by looking at a combination of uh, temperature data over the land, over the eastern U.S., and temperature data over the ocean, or these sea surface temperatures, uh, was a pattern that involved uh, relatively warmer than average uh, ocean temperatures in the southern part of the North Pacific and cooler than average ocean temperatures to the northwest of that uh, warm anomaly that tend to occur in the weeks preceding uh, heat waves that occur in the eastern U.S. And so what we can do is, going into the future, look at if we see sea surface temperature patterns that look like the ones we've identified in the study and use those to actually predict uh, upcoming heat waves. So in, in the paper, uh, you write that when that Pacific fingerprint that you were just talking about includes um, a, a, that specific pattern of ocean warmth, um, high pressure tends to form in the east. And that, in turn, alters the way air circulates in the atmosphere over the United States d during the summer. Can you tell us a little bit more about how conditions in the Pacific, those conditions, um, actually are connected to heat waves? What's the actual physical connection? Sure. So there are kind of two answers to that question. The first is that uh, we're really observing this coupled system. So what we see through our analysis, which is purely based on observations, is the occurrence of this pattern, the Pacific Extreme pattern, at the same time as actually having low precipitation over the eastern U.S. So there's an atmospheric circulation pattern that's associated with both these Pacific uh, sea surface temperature anomalies and low precipitation. Now that precipitation deficit dries out the soil over time, essentially priming the eastern U.S. to have these extreme events. And then that atmospheric circulation pattern also evolves over time until it ultimately involves a large high-pressure system over the eastern U.S. that's associated with sunny skies, uh, enhanced radiative heating, and the ultimate heat wave that occurs. Now, in terms of what is causing what in this coupled system, we actually can't tell that right now because we've just been using the observations. Uh, and so there are two leading hypotheses. One would be that the ocean is actually increasing the probability of these atmospheric circulation patterns that involve the low precipitation and also the high pressure system. Uh, the other hypothesis, which would be more consistent with kind of the status quo in the science right now, would be that the ocean is just responding to the atmosphere and basically recording these anomalies. So it can serve as a statistical predictor of the heat waves, but it's not actually causing the atmospheric circulation anomalies. So what, what led you to do this research in the first place? Were there, there hints that there could be a connection? You know, as often is true in science, I think that you just start exploring the data and having fun with it, and, and things kind of pop out. So we were just interested in my PhD group back at Harvard in temperature variability more generally, uh, and I started looking at heat waves. And uh, because sea surface temperatures could allow for predictability due to the fact that they persist longer than, say, atmospheric anomalies, I just wondered if you could uh, look at if there were sea surface temperature anomalies that happened associated with heat waves. And once we started looking at the data, the pattern that we identify in this paper just popped out really clearly, and we were able to trace it backwards in time, and that allowed us to do this predictability. Was there a 
sort of an aha moment where, you know, you said that it popped out at you. Was it really like that or? It really was. I mean, I, I simply, the first thing I did was really uh, composite or kind of average sea surface temperature anomalies on the, just the days that we have hot weather in the eastern U.S. And, you know, nothing really shows up in the ocean except for this very, very clear anomaly pattern in the Pacific. Um, and the anomaly pattern was quite interesting because it actually uh, had similar length scales as atmospheric circulation anomalies. So once we saw it, we also thought, oh, like this is probably related to the atmosphere because it has a similar characteristic as atmospheric anomalies. Mm -hmm. So let's sort of transition to maybe, you know, practical implications of the research. Um, how might it actually be used in forecasts? Yeah, so it's a good question. It's something that we're also hoping to learn as we go forward. So this year, for the first time, we are planning on making these predictions public um, on, on a website that will get up and running before early May when we can make them. So in one sense, we'll, we'll kind of see how people use them. But uh, in a more abstract sense, we hope that people who are kind of controlling larger parts of infrastructure will be able to use them to plan ahead for some of the negative impacts of heat waves. So as an example, and especially the Northeast, a lot of people don't have air conditioning and, and there can be large increases in mortality when you have this hot weather. So if cities could know ahead of time that they should have cooling rooms available that are air conditioned for people to go to, uh, and also to warn the population about the negative health effects of heat waves, we think that would be helpful. Uh, another example is electric utilities, which can have rolling blackouts or brownouts if there's a sudden peak in uh, electricity demand due to air conditioning, and just letting them you know, know ahead of time that they shouldn't take a plant offline or they should be prepared to maybe get an extra natural gas plant online in case this heat event does occur. So let's let's dig into that a little bit more deeply because we know, you know, a week maybe ahead of time now that maybe a heat wave is coming and your research is showing that perhaps we can know further out even as far as maybe a month and a half or even a little bit more. What is the benefit in knowing so far out that a heat wave is coming? You know, I think it takes some time for people to prepare the infrastructure that you need to address these consequences of hot weather. Uh, and so we believe that having, you know, a week is a pretty fast turnaround to really prepare uh, certain elements of the infrastructure. So we think that having more than a week and in fact up to 40 to 50 days would generally be helpful. That said, we're looking forward to talking to stakeholders more in the future and really understanding more clearly exactly what their needs are. In the future, we could even try to modify the predictions to directly address the needs of relevant stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So maybe one last question. We know that um, with climate change, the frequency intensity of uh, heat waves is expected to go up and, and, and actually already has been. Is there particular re relevance of your study um, with that in mind? Yeah, so we actually detrended all of the data in the analysis because we actually wanted to remove any climate change signal. And that's to make sure our predictions are valid without you just predicting a trend. That's kind of an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. We wanted to predict this interannual variability and even intra-seasonal variability in heat waves. So our particular study does not have direct relevance to the climate change implications. That said, as these heat waves do become more extreme, possibly more common, uh, then it, we think it would be additionally helpful to have this additional warning to address the consequences before they occur. Dr. McKinnon of the uh, National Center for Atmospheric Research has been speaking with us about her research tying conditions in the northern Pacific Ocean to the risk of heat waves thousands of miles away in the eastern United States. Thank you so much for joining us today, Karen. Thank you for having me. And for How on Earth, I'm Tom Yulesman.
You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Rising levels of atmospheric nitrogen pollution threaten plant diversity throughout the U.S. in forests, woodlands, shrublands, and grasslands. That's according to a new study led by CU Boulder researchers. The findings were published yesterday in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's the first study to examine ecosystem-specific vulnerabilities to atmospheric nitrogen pollution on a continental scale. Here to tell us more is Dr. Sam Simkin. He's a scientist at CU's Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research, and he's the lead author of the study. Welcome to How on Earth, Sam. It's great to be here today. Let's just talk about this nitrogen stuff that's up in the air. Isn't that what most of the air is made of? That's right. Like 78% of the atmosphere is made of nitrogen, but ordinarily plants really can't get to that nitrogen without a little bit of help. Historically, a bacteria would help convert um, that nitrogen to a usable form like clover. So clover and other kind of benign ways to convert that nitrogen in the air into something that plants can use has been the way that it's happened in the past. Well, what's making nitrogen levels rise in a way that maybe plants are getting too much of a good thing? People have given a little bit of extra help, actually a lot of help. When um, fuels are combusted at, at power plants and in cars, that releases one form of nitrogen into the air that's bioavailable. Oh, you mean that anytime any one of us turns on our car or anytime a power plant, whether it's gas or coal, fires up, it's changing the nitrogen in the air into something plants can use? That's exactly right. And it, for cars, we have the, the modern catalytic converters kind of reduce this to a certain extent. And so if that was, were extended to power plants uh, more, then that could help uh, reduce this amount. But at present, there's a lot of those emissions being released. Okay, now you're worried about this, and we'll learn a little bit more about why you're worried in just a bit. But let's go ahead and list all the ways that humans are making this special nitrogen go up. You've said car exhaust, power plant exhaust, and also you mentioned fertilizer plants. Right, yeah, so the, the, the cars and, and the power plants, they release the form of nitrogen that's called the oxidized nitrogen, but for the purposes of, uh, of um, uh, creating fertilizer, we create this reduced form uh, of nitrogen, uh, and that's used uh, to grow plants, you know, it's uh, injected into the soil and eventually you know, animals will eat it, and so that's an, another important source of this nitrogen. Okay, so nitrogen from crop growing, from mm -hmm. doing that good thing we call growing crops to eat, mm -hmm. and also you mentioned that feedlots, that, that if animals are out grazing in the grasslands, that's not such a big deal, but when you concentrate a lot of animals together, that creates a lot of nitrogen pollution. Right. If you have a big manure lagoon where it's really concentrated, you're, yeah, and kind of grow. Right. Uh, you're more apt to have an excess go uh, into the atmosphere. Yeah. And you also mentioned that wherever there is this kind of nitrogen pollution, it travels about a few hundred miles. So it's a fairly regional event, fairly local. Right. You, you'll have a, a, the highest amount be right near the emission source, and then it gradually decreases as you move f further from the source. That's right. Okay, now Sam Simkin, you've said that this is bad for plants in the long run. Well, how can something that makes them grow more quickly be bad for plants in general? Right, it is counterintuitive because all plants need nitrogen. Uh, the trouble is uh, if you have too much of that nitrogen, some plants can essentially be a bully. They kind of take over the other plants. And so instead of this site where you've got maybe dozens of plants, some very colorful perhaps, you might just have a few grasses that took over all, all the others. 
So that's that ha starts to happen. You mean that we could have a world of dandelions and crabgrass? So, well, th this is one of the the um, the goals of our work to, to show where this would happen because there's been very good experimental uh, work in specific sites showing that this can happen. And we wanted to know: is this happening everywhere, or is it limited to certain locations? And so, what we found is it's more likely to happen in grasslands than it is in forests. Now that's interesting, Sam Simkin, because your maps, you have these great maps that people can find if they look at your study, showing where is the soil becoming more nitrogen loaded and where is it less loaded. And actually your maps show that grasslands don't have as much nitrogen as say forests or places where there's lots of trees, but evidently the grasslands are more vulnerable to even slight changes in nitrogen. Is that a way to put it? So I guess the way I would put it is that we th one of the reasons that we think that the grasslands are more vulnerable to these losses of species is there's not a lot of shade, and so there's more of a potential for that crowding effect to happen with grasses. In the forest, obviously, uh, when the, the, tr the leaves uh, leaf out in the forest, it's already kind of shady in the understory, so there's less of a potential for this species loss to occur in those forests. Oh, it has to do with the fact that plants to be bullies and grow fast they need nitrogen that's available to them, and they need sunshine. Yes, in, in a sense. And in, in, in it's a matter of, it's really this competition. You, you know, you kind of got some conflict between these different plant species, and so that is expected to be more uh, intense in these grassland ecosystems. There's a lot of grassland in the United States. Yes, that's that's definitely true. Now, there's um, there's actually not as much grassland left as there used to be, of course. A lot of it's been uh, converted to uh, like corn crops and a lot of agricultural crops, but yes, there is still a lot of grassland remaining. Is this a worry for us besides aesthetically? I mean, I, I would rather not have a world of just dandelions myself, but is there a worry in terms of the health of the planet? Yeah, there is. The thought is that if you lose certain species, you don't really know all the different roles they may have in an area or an ecosystem. And so if you lose certain species, it could really undermine the stability of the system and its ability to respond to other stresses, for example, drought and, and things like that. Now, in your study, you said a high percentage of species are vulnerable this way. What percentage? The specific metric that um, that we uh, came up with in our study was to look at the percent of the sites across the U.S. that we looked at. We looked at about 15,000 sites across the U.S., grasslands as well as forests, and about one out of four of those sites were had passed this tipping point where it looked like nitrogen could be responsible in part for some local reductions of plant species. I did want to add just one other thing. I wanted to make it clear that we weren't talking about um, global extinctions of, of plant species. We're talking about a, a particular location, certain species would be locally removed from that area. And yet, location by location, each location adds up to the planet. So this is a topic for us to be continuing to look at, it sounds like. We have just about 30 seconds. What would you recommend as the next step? Uh, well, so uh, one thing that I would recommend is that um, there's, uh, I had mentioned earlier that those emissions from tailpipes of cars are currently controlled by uh, catalytic converters. We could do similar things um, for power plants. And um, so those are just a few things that could be uh, helpful in this regard. Well, thank you again for joining us. I'm Shelley Schlender. We've been talking with Sam Simkin. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Sam is a scientist at CU's Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research, and he's the lead author of a new study about how increased concentrations of nitrogen pollution are harming plant diversity across the U.S.
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. Today's show was produced by me, Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Jim Cutta. Visit our website, howonearthradio.org, to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Shelley Schlender.